You're listening to WNHH Community Radio. You can catch us live on 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut, or on the TuneIn app. You can also hear the show through our website, thetableunderground.com, and find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other hosting sites. Welcome to The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel. For today's show, we're going to mix it up a little bit and interview me. I just returned from a powerful trip to Holland, where the Dutch government created a Holocaust memorial to my grandmother, Selma Weinberg Engel, and her family, most of whom were murdered by the Nazis during World War II. The family home in Holland was an inn called Hotel Weinberg, and it was torn down in November of last year, 2016. My grandmother grew up in this hotel, and my mother, her brother, and her cousins were all born and raised there, some before the war and some after. On May 4, 2017, the Dutch War Remembrance Day, I joined 40 members of my extended family in a return to the town of Zwolle in Holland to participate in multiple ceremonies and to see the unveiling of the permanent exhibit about my grandmother. It was also about the Weinberg family and the Jews who had once lived in Zwolle. The exhibit is located in the synagogue at the center of town. This experience, as you can imagine, was powerful for all the generations of our family. For today's show, I invited my friend Saul Fusner to join me for this conversation because he shares some of my history as a Jew with family who was killed during the Holocaust and because he teaches about this topic as well as genocide to high school students at New Haven Academy. He uses a curriculum called Facing History in Ourselves and he's trained other teachers about teaching the Holocaust. In 2012 and 2014, he was also an educator with the March of the Living in Poland. This summer, he has a Fund for Teachers grant to study the troubles in Northern Ireland, and he's also a professional storyteller. As you can imagine, this conversation is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to discussing individuals, families, and societies healing from genocide. We both believe that sharing personal stories is an important part of the healing, and hope that this conversation is meaningful for you, the listener. Hi, Saul. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah. I'm excited to learn about this. Yeah. It's quite a big story in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you also share Jewish heritage and, and family who are Holocaust survivors. So I really wanted to invite you to have this conversation mm-hmm. with me today. Um, so maybe I should start by telling you a little about the history of my grandparents. Um, so my grandfather is Chaim Engel. My grandmother is Selma Engel, Selma Weinberg Engel. And um, they met, they're both Jewish. Uh, my grandmother's from Holland, my grandfather from Poland. And they both ended up in Sobibor death camp, which is a Nazi death camp in Poland during World War II. And um, I was actually um, surprised when you said that, partly because the reputation of Sobibor is that no one ever got out of there um, yeah because it's distinguished as a extermination camp as opposed to a concentration camp right it was it was one of the camps that was purely an extermination camp people were just brought there to be killed the only people who were left alive were just enough jews to keep the camp functioning to sort the clothes uh do all the the few little things that needed to be done to keep it functional but it is one of the largest revolts and escapes from any camp. I think Sobibor and Treblinka were the only two camps that sort of had a large, um, successful revolt of Jews. And so uh, my grandparents were part of that revolt in the camp. Um, originally, 
uh, my grandfather was not involved in the in the revolt. There were some Russian soldiers who were captured, who were not Jewish, but were captured because they were fighting against the Nazis and they were brought into the camp. Um, and my grandparents had been there. I think my grandfather had been there for almost a year at that point. He was young and healthy, and so he was selected to work mm-hmm. in the camp. And my grandmother, I think, had been there for about six months. And she almost was sent to the death chamber when she got there because she was a little bit sick when she got there. And they would tell people when they arrived, if if you're sick, stand over there. If you're healthy, stand over here. And they'd sort of sort through people. They didn't People didn't know why they were being told to go to one place or the other. But my grandmother was young and very beautiful. And one of the Nazi guards told her, no, no, go stand over there. He, he sent her to go stand with the healthy people because he didn't want her to be killed. Mm. Um, and later, I think that in the first day that, that she arrived, uh, the Nazis and some of the Ukrainian guards made the Jews dance for them for entertainment. And they paired my grandparents with each other to mm. dance with each other. And they basically fell in love with each other from that point mm-hmm. forward. And people in the camp called them the bride and groom and mm-hmm. kind of knew them as a, a couple. My grandmother was very young. I don't think she'd ever had a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think she was 19 or 20 at that point, but she was just a very sort of immature um, mm-hmm. person. And also just people didn't really date in that era either. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> But uh, she was the baby of the family. Mm-hmm. And there was a, when the Russian soldiers were captured, they started to plan an escape and a revolt. And the one of the people who was supposed to be part of that plan um, got scared and didn't want to do, he was supposed to kill a guard. And my grandfather knew that this planning was going on and he told them, um, he said, you know, anything that you need to be done, I'll do it. And so right at the last minute, they asked him to be one of the people to kill the guards. And what they did was, there were different um, cabins where one was like a metalsmith, one was a leather shop, and this was where they took the um, metal out of the teeth from the Jews. So anyone who'd had metal put in their teeth for dental work or um, jewelry or things, metal was being melted down or was being extracted because the Nazis were trying to get anything valuable from the things that the Jews had when they came to the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, same in the leather shops. Um, and so the Jews who worked in those little shops basically bribed the Nazi guards and told them, um, oh, I'll make you a special pair of boots or I'll make something special for your girlfriend or something. And what they did was they coordinated to have all those guards come and pick up those things that they were getting at the same time. And the guards weren't really supposed to leave their posts. So this was all, they weren't really going to tell somebody, oh, I'm leaving my post to go get this thing that I'm not supposed to get. So they... um, when the guards came in to get their thing, the Jews who were there killed them. And so um, they used a knife or whatever um, they were able to find. And so my grandfather, in, and at the last minute, agreed to be one of those people and, and stabbed one of the Nazi guards to death. And right. he, he always told the story that when he did it, that he said, for my father and for my brother and for all the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, he found out that his father and his brother were killed because he had been sorting clothes in the camp right. and he found their clothes and uh, a photograph that I actually have on the wall right here right. Um, of them, the three of them standing at his mother's gravestone in Wuch in Lodz right, yeah, in yeah. Poland. Um, and that's when he realized that they, they were dead. So after, mm. 
after all the guards were killed that the roll call was called mm-hmm. for all the Jews to line up in the in the camp, but the guards weren't there. And so people um, just ran and they trampled over the, there was lots of fencing and barbed wire fences. Some people mm-hmm. ran and, and tried to climb and trample the fences. Some ran out the front gate of the, the camp, which is what my grandparents did. And the camp was surrounded by minefields. So mm-hmm. many people didn't make it through the minefields. Mm-hmm. And then it was surrounded by forest. Cause as you said, it was, mm-hmm. um, really a very secret camp so some of the mm-hmm. other concentration camps that i've seen they're right on the edge of a town like mm-hmm. lublin and poland absolutely the, the, That's the concentration really camp madonic is, is madonic is, exactly it's very um stark to see how close to town it is yeah, and, yeah. shocking yeah but this one is like way out in the middle of nowhere in the woods and so they then ran into the woods and then because my grandmother was dutch the yeah. other people who had run out of the camp were polish and because she didn't speak polish they wouldn't let my grandparents flee with them because if anybody heard her speaking yes. Dutch, they would know that she was Jewish and shouldn't be there. At that point, it was many years into mm. the war already. Mm. Um, they had they knew they were going to escape, so they put many layers of clothes on. They'd been hiding um, jewelry and things to be able to have used as money when they escaped. And so they went to the side of the road and they found... Um, my grandmother stood out by the road and they waited for someone to pass. And a farm... Uh, uh, a man came by in a in a wagon and they asked him if, if he could help them get to safety and he said that he lived too close to the road but he had a brother who had a farm farther away mm. that would be safer and so he took them to his brother's farm mm-hmm. and they gave the people's name were Adam and Stefka I mm. eventually went and in my lifetime went and met um, Stefka Adam had already passed on they're Polish they're Polish okay. Um, and my grandparents went and, um, they gave them the jewelry that they had at, in exchange for hiding mm-hmm. them. And they, my grandparents stayed in the hayloft of the barn for nine mm-hmm. months without leaving, um, covered in scabies and just mm-hmm. horrible. And in that time, my grandmother actually kept a, a diary. They somehow yes. managed to find some little tiny books and she mm-hmm. kept a diary and they spent all their time together. My grandmother got pregnant in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after nine months the russians liberated the area and Mm -hmm. then um, there was a very there's a year-long process of them being in poland and then my grandmother having the baby and then eventually them getting on a boat and trying to get back to holland which is where she was originally from and where she had all these really good memories and she wanted to get back to Mm -hmm. and my grandfather knew he didn't have anything in poland anymore and Mm -hmm. so in that time, they ended up taking a boat from France up to Holland, mm-hmm. and the baby uh, was fed, we think, some milk that had tainted water in it. I'm not yeah. sure why my grandmother wasn't breastfeeding, but the baby mm-hmm. got sick and died and mm-hmm. then was buried at sea. Mm-hmm. And then my grandmother and grandfather um, made it back to Zwolle, which is mm-hmm. the town in Holland, and my grandmother's brother, Bram, mm-hmm. and his wife and some of his children had survived the war in hiding. So they actually didn't get turned in and and end up in a camp, but they were Mm. in hiding and they were in, uh, the family had owned a small inn, which they called hotel Weinberg, which was Mm -hmm. the family name. It was a kosher inn in Zwolle. It was across from a cattle market. Mm -hmm. And so, um, they all lived together there for a while and continued, started to run the inn again as a way to survive and make money. Mm -hmm. And then eventually my grandparents went to Israel uh, they weren't very happy. They didn't get along well with working with 
my grandmother's brother and his wife. And so they um, went to Israel to see if they could be happy there. And there was so much war and fighting in Israel. Yes. My grandfather, he he was done with war at that yes. point. And so then in 1957, they came to America uh, mm-hmm. when my mom was 11. And, and then they had a long life here and, and had a pretty had a pretty good life here eventually after they you know took many years to to acclimate to being here and they spent most of my childhood going around to schools telling their story um, right. to other kids which is part of how I know know the story um the thing you mentioned early on that her life was saved by a Nazi guard who um took pity on her in the line um makes me think of Primo Levi's writing he always writes about especially in the book Moments of Reprieve, but mm-hmm. in all his books, he always looks for those moments of empathy and human kindness in the midst of um, that nightmarish situation. Right. Um, so there's a lot of his work is, is centered around that. And he's one of the one of the people that we use, one of the people that we have used a lot of text from in, in teaching about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is hard to reconcile those things about the... Yeah. moments of compassion in combination with the enormous horror that the yeah. same people were doing or mm-hmm. overseeing. So yeah. that is difficult to understand. Yeah. yeah. So just to continue the story, um, in around, I think it was around 1984, there was a book written and a made for TV movie, like an ABC movie called escape from Sobibor, which told mm-hmm. the story of this escape. And, um, it was a pretty big deal at the time. Like my mm-hmm. grandparents were on Good Morning America. Alan Arkin. It, yeah, Alan Arkin yeah. was in it. And um, it was very interesting. The people who were chosen to play my grandparents' role mm-hmm. in the movie um, mm-hmm. actually fell in love with each other. They met oh, wow. doing the movie, fell in love, beca- stayed very good friends with my grandparents because it was sort of this wow. magical thing yeah. that you know the same story played itself out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was around when I was... Um, 10 or 11 years old in the movie is there a scene where those two are forced to dance by the I believe Nazis? so yeah. I haven't looked at I haven't watched the movie in a while but oh. uh, it used to be on Netflix and I think yeah. you can see it on wow. YouTube and stuff so people yeah. can check it out it's called yeah. Escape from Sobibor so I think when that movie came out I started to really hear more details about the story my mom didn't really talk about um, the details about the story I think as typical of that first generation, um, she didn't really want to talk about it very much. Mm -hmm. She talked about it in more abstract ways, but she didn't want to hear the details because I think it was too traumatizing for her. She heard a lot of it from her mother when she was growing up, so she didn't really want to talk about it more. Um, I I told you this before, but my grandfather, when my father would ask where he was from in Poland, my father would say, is it near Krakow? And he'd say, no, it's not near mm -hmm. Krakow. And he'd say, is it near Warsaw? And he'd say, no, it's it's not near Warsaw. And then he'd say, well, where is it? And my grandfather would always say, it's nowhere. And it was this idea of trying to make sure that my father did not know where in Poland his father was from. So he would never go there. He would never Mm. look for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think my mom always had this really good feeling about Holland because I think there was this, it was I think the horror happened in Poland and so maybe it was less connected to the actual place they were from, but definitely there was this not wanting to talk about the details or or hear the details of what happened. Um, But my grandparents, 
I think they'd already been going around to schools and talking and they really saw it as their obligation, especially after the movie came out because then people started using the movie in curriculum in yeah. middle schools and high schools. And so they would go around and tell their story and mm-hmm. um, they came to my school in middle school mm-hmm. and in high school. Mm-hmm. And then I would ask them questions because I wanted to know about the family history. So mm-hmm. the stories of the Holocaust and, and the imagery of it is definitely mm-hmm. like a really big part of my life but mm-hmm. not obviously it's not my personal experience but it definitely mm-hmm. was an enormous part of my life and mm-hmm. there's a level of kind of trauma that comes from having that be kind of a foundational story of your life yeah even if it's not your um it's not the same at all as the experiential yeah. trauma of it but it, it definitely had a, a big impact on me growing the up the second time i went to poland one of the people i was with is a He's a therapist um, from Rhode Island, and his specialty, what he writes about is the children of Holocaust survivors Mm -hmm. and the psychological impact of that legacy on the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also been genetic studies. My family participated in a a genetic study with, um, I think it was with Mount Sinai Hospital, where they were looking at the effects of trauma on genetics and is is that trauma passed on right. like is the PTSD passed on genetically it's epigenetics and it yeah. and it is it's passed mm-hmm. on they they determined it was passed on to the second generation and i think also the third generation mm. and i always think about you know growing up for me less in a jewish community and more in a black community like mm. how much how much of that trauma like the holocaust was you know world war 2 was a few years <laughs> versus slavery, mm-hmm. you know, is hundreds of years. And mm-hmm. so um, how much greater is that effect of, of passing on that trauma gene- on the genetics mm-hmm. of people? And, mm-hmm. um, and I think the resiliency that comes out is also mm-hmm. amazing. So, mm-hmm. um, so in 2010, there was this pretty amazing thing that happened, which is that I think my grandmother called there's a museum of a um, there's a museum in Holland and I forget the the name of it but it's it's to commemorate what happened with the Holocaust and in, and a I think it was a holding camp there not an actual concentration camp but a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a holding camp and so she called there to complain to them about something that they had some story wrong or they weren't they mm-hmm. weren't telling the story right she wanted to make sure they had the right history and the person who she talked to realized that they were talking to someone who was had some pretty significant story to tell. And so they ended up sending um, a crew from the Dutch national television station and a public historian who was, I always say he's sort of like the Ken Burns of Holland. Like he does these sort of pretty in-depth historical um, documentaries and, and stories. And so they sent this whole team of people here after having researched a lot about my grandparents' life. My, my grandfather had already died at this point. Um, and they sent them here to uh, create a documentary about my grandmother and to do a series of interviews with her as well as with my mother and myself. And um, Ad van Limt is the man's name. He wrote this book called Selma, which is my grandmother's name. And then they mm-hmm. did a, a television movie about it, a documentary. And they invited her to come because the queen wanted, I think the Dutch government wanted to apologize in some way not only for what happened to all the Jews but also some specifics about my grandmother's story when she came back to Holland that she was treated very badly by the Dutch government because she was Mm -hmm. 
now married to someone who was Polish. She was considered to have lost her Dutch citizenship. And so mm. they were making her and my grandfather check in at the police station all the time and really harassing them in a horrible way. Um, so everything they'd been through was just even worse by what happened yeah. when they returned to the country. And so we, my sister and I took my grandmother to Holland and it was unbelievable because everywhere we went, peop- they, we didn't realize, but they were like promoting this on television mm, everywhere. Yeah. So everywhere we went, people would stop yeah. my grandmother and talk to her. And the, the level of interest and compassion in her story was just, we had no idea that people would care that much. And um, I think it was, there was a piece of it, I think, that was healing for her just to have her story acknowledged in that way. Um, and also there was a moment where there was sort of an official, uh, government apology and she sort of responded in a way of saying, well, it's too late. Like, which is true. Like there's nothing you can do to really apologize for something like that. So in that time we went to, um, the inn, the, Mm -hmm. the Weinberg hotel, the hotel Weinberg where they had grown up, we went to see it. And at that point it was a pretty rundown building, um, and it, uh, there were squatters living in it, like artists and who were mm-hmm. doing art there, but the building was really falling apart. And the government said it was going to be torn down because they wanted to build other things there. They didn't have money to restore it, which was sort of disappointing. I felt like it's this physical piece yeah. of history. It would be nice if they restored it in some way. Yeah. But they promised that when it came down that they would do some sort of memorial or something to commemorate the history of that building in that place. Right. And... Um, so they tore it down about six months ago, um, just at the end of 2016 Mm. and they invited over our, as much of our family as wanted to come for a Holocaust Remembrance Day ceremony. And so just a few weeks ago, Mm. um, 37 members of my extended family from Canada and the United States um, as well as some newfound family in Holland who are um, related through the grandparents were brothers, wow. um, came together for this pretty amazing memorial. So it was my mother um, and then four of her cousins who were all born and raised in this hotel. Uh, there was one, my mother's brother wasn't able to come, but the four out of, uh, I'm sorry, five out of the six of them who were born and raised there came and then many of their children and some of their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So I went with my husband and my children mm-hmm. and my sister went and, and many other family members and the government did, uh, it was their Holocaust Remembrance Day. And so they did a, um, they created an installation within the synagogue in the town that has a lot of the historical, um, facts about my grandmother's life and about where she had gone through the war and about just her family's history, the history of the hotel, as well as a number of artifacts from the Jewish people in the town. Um, things like Torah scrolls or Kiddush cups or candlesticks Mm. that apparently a number of the Jews from the town had put into the bank into hiding dirt before the war. And then they were all killed and then eventually they were found in the safes. And so many of those things are now in this exhibit Um, so it was, the reason I wanted to talk today is because it was just, it was such a profound experience, um, seeing the level at which a whole country was acknowledging what happened in the war. Um, we went to, there was the thing that happened at the synagogue where there was 
there was a specific talk about my grandmother and they showed this exhibit. The following, I think it was that later that evening, there was a, a ceremony at a, at a church actually where there were um, poems read by teenagers, one of whom was a Syrian refugee um, who had only recently, I think a year and a half ago, come to Holland and read a poem about being a recent refugee versus mm. the refugees during, during and the, you know, what happened during the Holocaust and World War II. And then there was like a 40-minute silent march through town led by the mayor with all of our family right behind and then hundreds and hundreds, maybe more than a thousand people walking silently behind them. And it culminated in the town center. And this was on like national television and there was a huge, um, all the military was lined up and just thousands and thousands of people. And there was a two-minute um, moment of silence where the entire country shuts down. Like the trains stop, the cars mm. stop, the buses stop, everything stops. No matter what's going on, everything stops for two minutes of silence to remember the war and to remember what, what was done. And that was just profound. Like yeah. coming from this country where we don't even talk honestly about our history. We yeah. don't even acknowledge like the actual facts of our history. We don't We don't teach about slavery. We don't teach about what Columbus really did. <laughs> you know, we don't mm. teach about what actually happened on this land. And to be in a place where people were sort of acknowledging the history, confronting their guilt around it. Actually, the government paid reparations. As a public celebration. As a, yeah, yeah, I mean, as a public, public acknowledgement. acknowledgement yeah. um, not celebration necessarily, but yeah, right, a but memorial and yeah, acknowledgement. Sure. And it was just profound to me, like, and I think it was profound to, especially to my mother's generation who, you know, they lived through the aftermath of, of the horror of, of the Holocaust. And I just was so struck by that of, um, you know, how does the society, how does a society yes. and a government say, sorry, how does the society heal mm -hmm. from this kind of trauma? Um, there are, you know, so many people who suffer from their history not being acknowledged right. uh, you know especially the the question of the armenian genocide and the the turkish government position on that um and i think i i didn't know this about the netherlands but but i know that that germany has been quite uh quite good at acknowledging that this happened in their history that that, that this these terrible things were done right. by their government in a way that a lot of other governments are not not willing to do in a large scale way in a, in a in this kind of public forum um i think the in in some ways the the polish government has been very welcoming to jews in recent years but there's also a sort of a reflexive this war happened to us and the jews um um, there's frequently uh, a self-victimization that we we were victims too, um, which is which is true, but it feels defensive when um, when that is is brought up right. so quickly after acknowledging um, what took place to to the Jews there. Well, so I, I think, think I think that, that's really important what the Dutch did. Yeah, I mean, in my sense when I was I went to Poland, so I did this sort of roots trip looking going and visiting places and and trying to kind of actually get in contact with this history myself in 1996 when i 
mm. uh, the year after I got out of college. And mm. um, when I was in Poland, as you said, like the, mm. the concentration camp Madonic is right outside of the yeah. town. Like you can walk there from the center of town and it's a college town mm-hmm. and it's fully standing. Like mm-hmm. all the barracks are there, yeah. the fa- everything. And I saw, this is in 1996, I right. saw anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish graffiti Mm-hmm. recent spray painted graffiti around yeah. the town yeah. like jewish stars on nooses right. on like a hangman's noose and right. things um something that said jude with like a line through it and i just thought there was a level of not acknowledging i've also war. seen that in lublin yeah. but um the nice thing about when i saw it was it was very small and it looked quickly done it looked like someone had done it nervously in a moment and that sort of gave me some hope that it wasn't, you know, it was it was seen as not acceptable overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that outside the old the old um, the old Jewish school that's been revived, but very small yeah. anti-Semitic uh, graffiti. But as you say, with Maidanic, and I know that the town of Lublin has grown, so maybe it wasn't quite as close, but it was still close enough that when you have burning bodies that smoke was definitely smelled in the town of Lublin. Um, in Auschwitz, you see how it's away from the town. It's, 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 it's put away. It's, it's, it's secretive. There was no secret. Clearly there was no secret about Maidanic. It was right there at the edge of town. Right. Yeah. I don't know. There's nothing about seeing the graffiti there that I could sort of come. I mean, I get what you're saying. Maybe it's wishful thinking. It's just hard for me to understand if, if you see, if you see Mm. the evidence of what was done there, how that can, I mean, I get it that it continues it. Hatred of people, no matter what it's based on continues, but it was, it was pretty shocking to see that Um, compared to time that I had been in Germany where people are overly apologetic and extremely sensitive about about the war and about their families either direct involvement or indirect because people feel just as complicit when they didn't do anything when their families didn't Mm -hmm. take action um so yeah i think you know one of one of the things that i saw in in zuela was i have a photo here and i'll put it up on my website but these things called stumble stones which are these metal um they're basically to replace a cobblestone or a brick in the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And they have words on them that are a remembrance of a person and a place. So they're often mm-hmm. a remembrance of a specific person. So there's one here for... Um, Betty? Tanta Bep. Yeah, it was Bicia Weinberg. Um, my mom called her Tanta Bep. It was her Aunt Bep. And it was outside, I believe, of a place where she worked. So it's literally you're going into a modern like shoe store or a mm-hmm. cafe or something. And, you know, right out front where you'll stumble over it, there were these stones replaced of three. This In this case, it was three stones of people who worked, Jews who were killed and in the during the war and who worked in that place. And so there's sort of more of this like living memory and this yeah. i think is something that started in germany and then is now done in holland but i don't think is done in poland and some other countries um mm. and i think is really significant i mean it you know i feel like in our country i see in new haven for example we have the amistad memorial or in boston you see you know statues of harriet tubman or some things around the freedom trail and but 
we rarely have remembrances of specific people, right? It becomes this mm. like, it's something of like mm. mythical standing when mm. we talk about the genocide in our country, but mm-hmm. it's not around your aunt, your father, your yes. brother, your great, great, great grandmother. Right. And we have some of that history. It's not like yeah. the history doesn't the exist. The WPA slave narratives, you right. can get them online. Yeah. You can listen to them anytime. Yeah. And I don't mean this to say that we should like define a people by by genocide or by oppression or by um, right. by only the negative history. We should also right. remember all of the vibrancy and the positive history. But I think that acknowledging, like, if you have a sense that this land that you're on, like, once belonged to right. other people, once was home of other people, this is where sacred things happened or where horrible things happened. Um, it's significant. I think it's important to understand that history. Yeah. I'm curious for you, like you teach this, um, you teach students about how to think about genocide and horror, you know, horror on a society level, societal level and how a society copes with that and Mm. deals with it. I'd love to hear a little about kind of how, how you teach that and how, what do students think about this? How do they grapple with it? When we teach the Holocaust specifically, um, that's sort of the, the original class that the facing history curriculum created was and and they didn't they didn't lay down in the history of facing history they they didn't lay down like this is a way this is this they they laid down certain guidelines and then a book that is less a textbook and more what they call a source book so you can pick and choose and use what you want to use but the idea is um, that you teach the class in this um, scope and sequence that starts from students examining their own behavior and the way they behave around other groups and uh, looking at cases in uh, more recent America. Uh, and once they've done a lot of work around that and a lot of journaling and a lot of writing on their own, only at that time do they come in contact with the case study in the course, which is, which is the Holocaust. So they've, they've gone through half a semester, semester long course. They've gone through half a semester before they get to Weimar Germany and Mm -hmm. they start to, uh, do that research. So first it's about really, and that's why it's called facing history and ourselves. It's like first looking at the way you behave and taking a critical look at your own behavior in the world and then looking at, um, the extremes uh, where where that behavior can go, uh, and then the cycle then after the case study is looking at attempts at judgment and justice, uh, and then and then what do we do with this? Like the the end the end part of the class is called choosing to participate. How do we memorialize um, these events? How do we make sure that we check ourselves in terms of the problems that lead to these Mm -hmm. sorts of events. So in sophomore year, the case study is looking at um, the Armenian genocide just a little bit, and then mainly focusing on South Africa and the truth and reconciliation um, hearings and on Northern Ireland and then the, the good Friday agreement. Mm. Um, and in the past, we've also we've we've taught Rwanda. We've developed different lessons. This Northern Ireland unit is really our own. We were helped greatly 
by people from facing history who gave us materials. And then we as a department created a way of teaching Northern Ireland um, that, you know, we have our Google, our Google doc filled with our Mm -hmm. uh, lessons that we're building that will, will live on in the school. Even after we're gone, there, there are these lessons that we use. And actually that unit um, passes pretty fast. And there are, there are things that we've noticed that could be improved in there. Mm-hmm. A longer history before the Troubles in Northern Ireland, a longer history of um, the Irish and English situation. And so um, a colleague and I have a Fund for Teachers grant this summer to go to Ireland and to Northern Ireland and to spend two weeks there um, sharpening our own knowledge and mm. walking in the places. As a person who teaches history I really enjoy walking in the places I'll give you a for instance I was teaching about the civil rights movement and I went to Alabama and I had taught for several years I'd been teaching the civil rights movement but walking past uh, the church where Vernon Johns was the priest and then Martin Luther King was the priest and seeing how close that is to the state house of Alabama and thinking about Vernon Johns uh, before King, who had put out very incendiary uh, sermons that he would announce on the board out front of that church, just I finally realized that those messages that he was sending had to be seen by every politician in mm. Alabama going to the State House in Montgomery. I never would have known that if I hadn't walked that walk. And walking in Selma and seeing how the church where everything was organized is right across from the major housing project where black citizens of Selma lived. So not only was it um, civil rights workers coming from all over the South to Selma, there were also people who just lived there and that's what was going on. Mm -hmm. So they saw what was going on in the church and um, the man who runs the voting rights museum down there remembers being a child there and just going up to the church and saying, Hey, what's going on? There's a March. Okay, let's get involved. Part of that was people who just wanted to be involved in the exciting thing that was that was coming to town, that was happening in town. And they got swept up into the civil rights movement partly because it was it was what they saw across the street from them. I mean, that's how movements work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that people and, don't believe in what the movement right. is about, but it's the it's the the accessibility and being the able excitement. to be part of something yeah. and not fighting against something by yourself, yeah. but joining with other people is is exciting. It feels powerful, right? And so, yeah, I think that that that's and certainly part of it. I going back to Northern Ireland, the country is so small that you get put in touch with the most incredible people. There's a man who does tours uh, of the Derry Walls and tours about Bloody Sunday, and his father was one of the people killed at Bloody Sunday. Mm. Um, Patrick Doherty, yeah. uh, his son, is going to lead us on, on a That's tour great. when we get to Derry. So it's touching history. I think when you, when you, I feel, I'm not, I would say I'm not a hugely superstitious person, but when I do get to these places, I do feel some sort of presence. And when we were in Woods Cemetery, we had a very strange occurrence where um, on the trip, this was in 2012, the first time I went to Poland, Uh, I was rooming with a Holocaust survivor uh, and his daughter um, reads Hebrew and they knew that in Woods Cemetery somewhere uh, 
her father's uncle was was buried there mm-hmm. but they we didn't have a map of the cemetery and there was no one to show us around and she just sort of felt called somehow she she left the group and she was wandering through the cemetery uh, and she felt called to this spot and she found wow and it's a huge you know it's it's, it's, it's the biggest jewish yeah. cemetery in europe and she found that grave we took we took pictures there and things like that it was very magical to be yeah. in that cemetery and to see the opulence of the graves that still stand there for jews uh it's like a testimony to the fact that jews were a huge part of the city of of Łódź. and one of the things that had inspired me to go to poland was reading things like um isaac bashevis singer his his novel Shosha, mm-hmm. and um, also a book by a guy named, I think his name is Edward Stankiewicz. He was a, a Yale professor, but he wrote about his own, My War is about his own Holocaust experience. But reading things like that inspired me to see that between World War One and World War II, there were there was such a, a rich, very modern, very intellectual literary culture of Yiddish writers. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't as old world as we think of it. It wasn't just shtetls. It was very... It was everything. Yeah, I it mean, was everything. there was... My grandfather was right. working in like the textile factories. And so there yes. was like workers and right. intellectuals That's and everything. They were Because that was the Manchester of Jews. Poland. Yes. <laughs> and other Exactly. And other the places, textile so. factories of which... Yeah. So, so I just feel like the the Nazi um, Holocaust was such a complete Holocaust because besides the six million dead, there was a culture that was thriving, totally thriving between eighteen between nineteen eighteen and nineteen thirty nine, and then just totally snuffed out. Um, and there are films, there are films from nineteen thirty nine of the Jewish communities in the major Polish cities that were made by these two brothers from America and I have them and uh, it's just, it's just a place was there uh, and it was so vibrant and then it was suddenly gone. So suddenly gone. Yeah. There's so many more things I want to talk with you about, but, but I have to just say that one of the things that has been really striking for me this year is that, you know, I grew up with this history and I did a lot of stuff around my personal work on kind of healing around having this be a part of my family and my history and also kind of acknowledging the parts of it that are powerful and feel Mm -hmm. important. And this experience of Donald Trump being president Mm -hmm. right now, like, Mm -hmm. and the anti-Semitism and hatred of Muslims and kind of the social acceptability of expressing hatred and violence and lack of empathy and lack of of empathy. I mean, this has always existed in certain ways in our in our right. culture right this is this is a right. like racism and and these power dynamics and and things are are the fundamental way that our society was set up and they, it's not like they weren't there but the level of which it's become more acceptable as well as like the amount of um videos of police violence against right. black people that have been right. now we have videos right it's not just people's stories i mean mm-hmm. i guess we had this in the era of Rodney King as well, but it's mm. just more and more. And yet the courts are still not convicting most of the police officers. And um, Right, which and, is also, which links back to the non-acknowledgement of suffering. Exactly. Like, I'm not going to acknowledge that this is really happening. Right. 
or it's not really happening the way you say it's happening. Right. Um, but it's like this denial of our history right. is what allows people to say like, we're not a racist country. We don't do right. bad things. Like right. we do and we right. have. And I right. think that like without us ever actually acknowledging the truth right. of our history, we will never get beyond it and be able right. to heal. Like as long as it's a conversation about you're a racist or he's a racist versus right. saying we live in a racist society where yeah. we all learn racism, everybody, right. how does that affect us? How do we see each other? How do we right. think about ourselves? How do white people think about themselves? Right. How do black people think about themselves? Like without acknowledging that, like we're not going to get out of this vicious cycle. And right. I think this, I'm curious how you feel, but for me, this, I sort of had this feeling of like we were past this. Like the yes. like there's a certain feeling of like yes. okay, we still have a lot of work to do in terms right. of acknowledging our history, undoing racism. Mm -hmm. I'm well aware there's always been anti-Semitism and right. will probably always continue to be and and also just the horrible ways that Muslims have been being treated in our country. But there was a way in which I felt like in terms of Jews and the Holocaust like oh, we were past this part and then to see that right. sort of resurface um, and the kind of uh, just people giving like the Hitler salute and all right. that stuff is just shocking. How has that affected you? Um, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I, I feel like there's a vein in America of this sort of love it or leave it, like of this being critical is being unpatriotic and then on the other hand there's this vein of we have this history of being critical that needs to be acknowledged too um so i i like you thought that so much of what i grew up experiencing I felt like the country had matured past that. And for instance, even when I started teaching at New Haven Academy, this is only 10 years ago, the students in general, there was a lot more homophobia. There were a lot of students who made statements like, if there is a gay straight alliance at our school, I'm leaving our school. And now it's almost 100% accepted that students are gay it's no big deal the gay straight alliance day of silence is one of the most popular student events of the year probably the most popular so in some ways our culture has become so much more accepting but i think anytime a culture becomes that much more accepting there's going to be a reaction there's going to be another side to that there's going to be people who who can't stand that there's going to be people who are sort of boiling up inside. And I think right now we're seeing some overflowing of that. Right. Um, and there's I, also always a distinction between something that can sort of technically be hidden, like being gay versus right. a skin color or True. ethnic identity, yeah. which not that anyone should have to hide anything, but I think right. there, you know, there are some differences and, but I, I, I feel you like it's, yeah. it's definitely our society's uh, acceptance in a general way of, of, of gay rights has improved, but you can't always draw the parallel around kind of race right. and ethnicity. So. Yeah. But there's just that as a symbol of a society growing up a little bit. 
um, that's so easy to see since uh, the time that we were teenagers. Um, and it, it makes you think we've grown up in this way. Maybe we can grow up in these other ways. And uh, you, you don't know by looking at people this, these incredible stories that exist within them and just to know that here locally in New Haven, there's someone who was such a major part of this very important historical event. That's not just, you know, a person who was not just a Holocaust survivor, but uh, a part of fighting back. Right. Uh, a story that really needs to be told that my, my students always like to hear that fighting back story. Right. Um, when they had studied the Holocaust, um, they like to hear about um, the partisans, you know, yeah. um, when they study slavery, they like to hear about the slave revolts. They yes. like to hear about, we need um, those inspirational stories right. to keep and us they, going. It's and they like to read about, black people who wrote against slavery. Yeah. Uh, and there were many of them. Yeah. Yeah. No, those stories are very important for giving us hope. And that's, I think, part of what is fueling people's organizing and, and fighting back today. So I'm happy that you joined me to talk about right. this. Here's to stories. Yes. Storytelling. More, and we'll put more up on the website so people can check out thetableunderground.com and we'll give more information about the work that you do at New Haven Academy, and I'll put up a lot Great. of information on my family story as well. Great. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Table Underground. You can read a lot more about this story, see photographs of my trip to Holland, and check out past episodes at thetableunderground.com. You can also listen to the show through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcasting sites. Thanks to WNHH Radio for hosting our show, and thank you for listening. I'd love to hear what you think. Leave a comment on the website, Facebook, or Instagram. Check you next time.